Thank you, Daryl. Uh, the uh, program has been a little bit reorganized, as explained by Philip at the previous session. Instead of a two-hour presentation in the morning, followed by another two-hour presentation in the afternoon, we have two shorter presentations in the morning and two shorter presentations in the afternoon. So this uh, makes it necessary to change some of the titles. Uh, the title of this particular talk will be the first title in your program, which is the concept of the basis as a tool of warehousing. So remember, we have a primer on the gold and silver bases as a first definition, a rough one, which can be refined later as we go. But the first definition would be the basis, say the gold basis, is the difference between the nearest future price and the cash price of the gold. As a matter of uh, common uh, experience, the future price is at a premium and the cash price is the lower of the two. This situation is known as contango. I don't know where this word comes from, but it nicely rhymes with tango. And I use this uh, as uh, with, uh, obviously tongue-in-cheek. The last contango in Washington to mean the end of the dollar system and the last contango in Washington brings to mind the last tango in Paris. So if you excuse this little pun of mine, I am using it again and again. This is not the first time I've used it. I have given this title to some of my papers and talks elsewhere. But I think it's fitting and it's also to the point. Anyhow, the situation whereby the future price is at a premium is called contango and the opposite situation when the future price is at a discount in, compar in comparison with the cash price is called backwardation. But this is very crude and to refine the concept they introduced the basis and the basis is the actual difference between the contango price and the cash price uh, if it's positive. So the basis could be positive and normally it is positive and if uh, the basis goes to negative then you have the backwardation, the opposite situation. So the same is for silver and it's not immediate it's not immediately understandable why why this is so important 
Because what I'm suggesting it to you is that the basis is the most important single economic indicator which helps you to make prognosis, to helps you to uh, anticipate future economic events. And and this is this takes a little bit of thinking and analysis and concentration. And the purpose of this talk is to make that, in fact, clear. And the surprising answer is that the basis is a kind of measure just how profitable the warehousing business is. But for that, we have to go to another example because the uh, precious metals or monetary metal markets are not really historically the uh, first examples of the basis and basis trading. Historically, this concept was evolving in the grain markets, especially in the American Midwest where they, they built huge uh, elevators for the purposes of storing grain. At harvest time, they filled up the elevators, and during the crop year, they brought down the uh, stored grain. So the elevators were empty by the time the next crop was brought in, and when the cycle started again, and <coughs> it went on year after year. So the futures market in grains developed simultaneously with the grain elevator industry. What happened was that the future markets quoted the, uh, the future grain price on a monthly basis for the sake of simplification for every month of the crop year there was a contract called for delivery of a fixed amount of grain of a certain prescribed quality at that particular time. So those who were in the grain business, the grain elevator business, they had this problem or facility to get prices not just for the cash grain but for the future grain prices. And <clears throat> the uh, users of grain uh, could provide for their future needs by going to the future market. So this was um, spreading the grain business on a much wider basis than it was possible before. The number one consideration which we should recognize in this change, this, this happened uh, towards the last 20-30 years of the 19th century when organized uh, uh, markets, futures markets 
arose and uh, at the same time uh, they made it possible for the grain elevators to build their storage facilities. But the first <clears throat> thing to note is that the capacity of a grain elevator is far too great as far in terms of risks involved. Because if you filled up your grain elevator, the quantity of grain you controlled was so huge that even a small change in the grain price could wipe out, wipe out your capital, which is represented by the cost of building these elevators. So this is a, a, a very good example where you see how capital can be put to work for you. You build these grain elevators and then you are able to provide the grain demanded by the market throughout the year. The, uh, uh, but the risk is there and the risk is magnified, greatly magnified. You have a larger capital but the capital is no longer sufficient to provide you with insurance against fluctuation in the grain price because an adverse movement, say a drop in the price of corn, could wipe out your whole capital. That's a real danger and you need protection for that. And this is exactly what the futures trading does because it futures trading spreads the, uh, the risk over uh, over the whole crop year and it boils down to the basis this is what happens uh, this is a simplified view obviously has to be but it does have the grain of truth in it the uh, beginning of the crop year just before the new crop is brought in the elevators are empty and the, uh, the basis, I remind you the difference between the future price and the cash, nearest future price and the cash price, is the widest, it's the maximum. <clears throat> now as the grain elevator operator fills up his bins with grain, the future, uh, rather the basis, is at this highest point. During the crop year, the basis has a tendency to fall, and it will reach the minimum, which could be backwardation as well, that is to say negative basis, at the end of the crop year when the the grain elevators are out of grain, ready for the new uh, crop to move in. So the, there is this annual cycle from minimum to maximum at the beginning of the year and then a gradual fall of the basis to the end of the crop year when the cycle repeats itself. So this is the course of the basis. 
Of course, there will be variations, there will be movements depending on different influencing, fact, influencing factors, but it's important to see the large picture, which is just this <laughs> cyclical movement. We can also describe this using the language of uh, cost of warehousing. Because obviously, the cost of warehousing will be the highest when the, the elevators are, are full. So any extra space which you may need is at a premium. And then as the crop year goes on, the more and more elevator space becomes available, so the cost of warehouse space comes down until it reaches its minimum at the end of the year when the grain elevators are practically empty. So this gives us a good conceptual uh, grasp of the basis. You might identify the basis with the cost of warehousing space, in this case elevator space for the, for the grain. And uh, the basis is the widest, means the, uh, uh, elevator space is most expensive and then it becomes cheaper and cheaper by the end of the crop year. It is the, the lowest level when it starts the cycle again. Now, why are we talking about grains when we are really interested in gold and silver? We are talking about grains because this is the beginning of the story. The grain trading was a problem which they solved long before the, uh, uh, the storing of precious metals by the individual came into vogue and this had to do with the uh, with the crisis of the monetary system which developed as you probably know we can go back to the 19th century in particular the civil war period in the United States and then World War II uh, and World War World War One first and World War Two on the other uh, made the uh, monetary crisis deeper and deeper until we reached uh, present day <laughs> situation when it is exploding in, in our face. So uh, what you would like to see here and you would like to understand is that the need for warehousing precious metals, and my preferred word is monetary metals, the need for warehousing them arose over a period of time. First, you could take the monetary system for granted, the, uh, uh, the promises of banks and governments to pay you gold on demand were sacrosanct and nobody would question their validity and then later on you found out that first weaker governments but then later on even the stronger ones or even the very strongest ones defaulted on their promises so if you wanted to hedge against that if you wanted to be secure that you have access to real money in all 
situations, then y you had to solve the problem of warehousing uh, monetary metals yourself because you no longer trusted the banks, no longer trusted the promises of governments. As I say, this developed over a period of a century or longer, but it did down, ultimately did down on the people that the promises are not what they pretend to be. The promises are there to fool people and governments declared bankruptcy fraudulently more often than they declared bankruptcy with a good reason because when Britain defaulted on its gold promises in 1931 this was a fraudulent default. The Bank of England did have gold to continue paying and the United States defaulted on its promises to pay uh, gold domestically in 1933, that was the very first uh, proclamation of the new president, President Roosevelt. And in 1971, this was the the coup de grace, the last uh, effort which succeeded in killing the gold standard, the United States government defaulted on its international gold obligations. So this uh, was a long process, uh, taking uh, longer than a full century, and uh, the conclusion which individuals who were thinking ahead had to make is how do we provide for <coughs> warehousing monetary metal on our own, out of our own resources, without relying on banks and government promises. And there was already a model that was the grain market. That's why I started explaining a little bit about grain trading and the grain market and how it developed the concept of bases and how the bases uh, had this um, cyclical pattern and how it can be interpreted in terms of the cost of warehousing you see because when you wanted to solve the problem uh, if you like hoarding gold and silver providing for, for money for difficult times when uh, the monetary system may even collapse then you will obviously uh, have to go back to first principles and you find these first principles in the grain trading so that's the explanation and that's why I am suggesting it to you if you're interested in this problem then you should study, you should take time and look at the grain trading and its various patterns. I will have occasion to point out the differences. Right now I am concentrating on the similarities. The basic similarity has to do with the problem of warehousing which, can, uh, which does arise um, <coughs> in the grain market 
from the fact that there's one crop a year which has to be distributed over the crop year so that there will be a grain available throughout the crop here at a reasonable price. I mean, just imagine if you didn't have that rather delicate mechanism of, of the elevators plus the future market, futures market for grain, then the price would have to take on the burden of clearing the market. So the, the grain price would be hugely depressed at harvest time when there was all this excess grain available. Nobody wanted it because there's far more grain than you would need for the, your current consumption. But by the end of the <coughs> uh, crop year it would be the other end of the stick. There would be a tremendous shortage and people would bid up the uh, grain price to unreasonable highs. So that would uh, certainly not be conducive to uh, social peace and so on uh, if, uh, if the price had to do the adjustment for you of the variation in the uh, quantities of grain in warehouses and, and um, the demand for immediate consumption. So this was truly a wonderful development, as I say, going back to the 19th century. Even though at that time nobody thought that we could ever face the problem of, uh, of the same problem as far as monetary metals were concerned, because the, it's very difficult today to explain how firm the belief of the ordinary people was in the promises of the banks and the government in those days. The, uh, the gold standard was sacrosanct. The, the, nobody in his right mind would question that a, a self-respecting government would ever default on a promise to pay gold on, uh, for banknotes or, or bonds or what have you. Uh, and then we lived to see that the promises of the government were of a lower level than the promises of crooks among themselves, because the, the governments uh, never meant in the first place to live up to those commitments when they made the, the promises. So this is how the basis comes in. We have this warehousing problem. We realize that for the sake of our own survival and for the uh, welfare and comfort and safety of our loved ones, our, uh, our spouses, our children, their interest in getting a good education later in life, and also providing for our old age when we uh, have uh, the weakness is going with old age and uh, various, we are more exposed to sickness and need more health care, more medicine and so on. We want to provide for those needs. Then the question comes up, can we trust the insurance company for this coverage or can we trust the government promises in promising uh, Medicare, uh, various other coverages, or 
are we better off if we just take the uh, our future security into our own hands and provide uh, for our own insurance? And in many cases, especially in a in time of a crisis like we have now, the answer is you are better off if you provide for your own old age, for the uh, education of your children, and the best way of doing this is through warehousing or hoarding monetary metals. Now, of course, that's a very broad-brushed answer, but there are more refinements, and we just have to work it out to see in what proportion these monetary metals, gold and silver, should enter the equation, and uh, what percentage of our uh, resources should be invested in uh, these monetary metals, and should we trade or we should just accumulate? And there are any number of questions you could ask. And of course, that is uh, what we try to do, uh, develop a model which is useful for, for most people. Of, of modest means. Of course, a very wealthy individual would solve these problems slightly differently. So, uh, we have now this problem and the solution we seek is through the basis which uh, is a kind of cost-benefit analysis when you zero in on the monetary metals. Uh, obviously, if the cost is too high, you may reduce your provision but if the cost of warehousing varies, then you might want to take advantage of uh, incremental savings or incremental investment in monetary metals, uh, taking those times when the cost of warehousing is the lowest, then you buy. And if you want to sell as well. In other words, you want to magnify your profits, you may consider selling as well. Uh, then uh, obviously selling will uh, be at the time when warehousing uh, is the highest. Now, most people just don't go through this analysis and therefore you have a head start because you are not buying gold or silver indiscriminately or when you ha can afford that you buy. No, you wait for the opportunity when you... And it's not the price which is your guiding star. It's the basis which is your guiding star because that determines the cost of warehousing. And you buy when it's the lowest and you sell uh, when it's the highest. I just want to put in a word about selling because selling may not be an appropriate uh, uh, market uh, option for people of modest means. Uh, and I count myself among them. I'm living on <laughs> a pension and I am acutely aware that my pension may go down to zero in value. I'm not, I'm not 
enjoying this prospect, but I have to be realistic enough to say, see that what happened to my father's generation and what happened to my grandfather's generation could happen to my own generation. <laughs> my grandfather was a pensioner uh, at the end of World War One, and his pension uh, was worth zero at one point after the war. My father was a pensioner at the time of or after World War II and exactly the same thing happened. And this explains at least partially why I have become interested in this problem. <laughs> I don't want the same thing to happen to me. <laughs> Now, if, if in North America, I don't know about Australia, but if in North America you say that, look, this is what happened to my grandfather, this is what happened to my father, I don't want it to happen to me, they would say, it would never, ever happen in America. What an absurd thing to assume that the pension could go down to zero in value or your social security would become worthless or your Medicare or this or that. After all, the people paying taxes are still out there and they are going to pay taxes to get our benefits. And um, I mean, this is the kind of mentality. And I'm sorry, I just don't take it. I think the uh, the mindset is such that we just have to change that. We have to get used to the idea that these cat uh, catastrophes do happen. They happen in Europe after lost wars, but they also happen uh, without any reference to any war anywhere, because in the great uh, depression of the 1930s, there was no war involved, yet pensions, pension funds went bankrupt and stopped paying pensions. And even uh, those, some, some of those who did not lose their jobs, and I'm in particular referring to uh, university professors, and I was deeply interested in their history because I was in the same uh, profession. During the Great Depression it did happen uh, in North America, which is the case I studied, that, uh, that uh, professorial compensation, you know, the salaries, were cut and caught pretty well indiscriminately just because you know a certain type of wages went down they said okay the professors have to take their shares so we cut their salary as well and you couldn't complain to anybody this was not a situation whereby you could assert your rights or uh, invoke uh, contracts or the promises this or that. this was take it or leave it if, if you didn't take your cut salary, then it will remain in the treasury and we'll find other beneficiaries. So this was the situation. And, uh, and therefore, I, as I say, the problem of warehousing monetary resources. Now, I come back to the point I started to developing, which was this. Selling out of 
your warehoused monetary metals may not be an appropriate uh, strategy for people of small means. And, uh, and uh, the reason is, is a little bit complex, but we should mention at least a few aspects of it. Uh, uh, selling is always more technical than buying. And it's also a matter of confidence, because you may not want people to know that you are selling, because that would be a red light, that there is something more where you, this has come from. So that's an invitation to burglars and uh, uh, violent people to come and steal your gold. We don't know, but there is a danger. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is that the government may want to know, uh, and, and uh, of course uh, uh, we, there have been examples that the government actually confiscated the gold uh, held by uh, citizens, people in the United States, for example, in 1933. So, the question arises, is there a possibility of warehousing which does not involve selling? Is there a strategy, a good strategy, acceptable strategy, which does not involve selling? In other words, you have an accumulation program, and is the basis still important for you if you have a strategy like this? And my answer is absolutely. Uh, if you, uh, there are such strategies that you keep buying, add a little bit on every payday to your uh, nest egg of gold or silver or both, and the basis is still relevant because the basis will tell you how to time. It may not be a good idea to buy every payday. Because one payday, the c cost of warehousing may be just too high, and then you want to wait for a better opportunity to buy. So you will fine-tune your buying to the cost of warehousing, which basically means you watch the bases, and the basis will give you the clues that this is a good time to buy. Buy now. And maybe you want to skip the next payday when you don't buy. So buy twice as much now. So all these questions come in and you have to study uh, the case and, and, and make the appropriate conclusion. Now how, how are we doing with we time? Five minutes left. Five minutes left. Eight, seven minutes. And then yeah. the question. And the question. Then the question. You were right. So I, I want to emphasize this, that the problem is very real. It's very practical. There's no question about that. That survival, one of your most important consideration is involved. And therefore, 
it should not be surprising that the answer is a little bit theoretical because because um, uh, sure the need is practical but in order to get the best answer you have to delve a little bit into theory so that's what we are doing I don't want to make it too theoretical but I want to warn you that theory does come into it and you have to make a conscious effort to to uh, be receptive to that theory. It's this theory is at the heart of the thing and if you don't understand what you are doing it's, it's, uh, it's not a good situation because you, you can easily make mistakes. So I started out with making a comparison between grain trading and grain warehousing on the one hand and monetary metal trading and monetary metal warehousing on the other hand. And when I talked about the basis in the grain trade I pointed out the rather obvious cyclical nature, yearly cycle, the basis varies with the availability of warehouse space. For the monetary metals the cyclical feature is completely absent. But there is something which takes its place and this is very important to understand. What happens is, instead of a cycle, we have an, what I could call erosion of the basis, or a steady decline. It's not along a straight line, but with uh, spikes, upward and downward spikes, it's a steady erosion over the years, or over the decades. The basis started from a rather high level, which means that the contango was historically wide, say when silver started trading in the uh, futures market this would probably, what kind of date could you put on that? Gold started much... 66. Six, okay. Now gold had to wait another 10 years, right? right? Yeah. Because the gold was in the United States, gold was uh, was uh, uh, contraband. It was not legal to own or trade gold. But, but uh, you know, if you go back to the earliest, I, uh, I would say you would find a contango where the basis was rather high. And by now, it has eroded to a low level, and there is no reason to assume, to, uh, at least I don't see any reason to assume, that this erosion would come to. Uh, and then, but what's the reason for that? The reason is the same. It's the the uh, availability of warehousing space. But of course, you have to adjust this because uh, originally, at the beginning, the banks offered this warehousing space for gold and silver at a very, very reasonable price. And, uh, the uh, uh, the banks became unreliable and individuals had to provide for their own warehousing 
facilities, which in some cases involved something as crude as digging a hole in your own garden. But the point is that the, uh, you can relate that problem in the same way to the, uh, to the availability of fair housing space. And, uh, and at one point, as we know, there is an important crossing point which is the basis goes from positive into negative. And uh, in terms of contango, contango disappears and gives rise to backwardation. And what about the end game? The end game is when uh, backwardation is so entrenched that there's absolutely no hope for contango to come back then it's the collapse of the monetary system. And, and, and you want to have a good uh, indicator which, which gives you forewarning. Uh, forewarned is forearmed, as the saying goes, and that's what you need. So here is the problem. I laid it out for you. And then there are lots of details which we try to fill in, but you have to really understand this so you will want to think about this as uh, we are going into the uh, next session that the basic problem is to provide for economic survival. So I stop here and invite uh, questions. Yes, um, this is our first session on the basis, um, which was the uh, purpose of this, and uh, we'll take uh, questions for fi 15 minutes about this uh, from the floor. And uh, uh, yes? I'll just make the grinding price is big. We're talking about the elevators being empty, is that sort of just adjust for the harvest? That's when the basis is widest? Um, he was uh, he was asking for a clarification on the uh, basis regarding the uh, grain elevators, as as the basis widest when they're empty. Is that what he, you're saying? Um, in terms the of the basis is the widest, which means the cost of warehousing is the highest. No, it's when it's full. When it's full, then any additional space is at a premium because you approach a number of elevators and you find that they are all pretty full so if if one of them has a little space he will definitely ask you to pay the premium for it now uh, of course the, the time between the empty elevator and the full elevator is just a matter of weeks we are at crop harvest time the crop is the new crop is coming in so this elevator space is filling up and it probably doesn't take more than a month while this happens so you have a rather steep change in the basis from uh, from uh, the lowest basis to the highest basis in the cycle. Whereas the erosion of the basis would take, say, 11 months. The opposite movement from the minimum to the top takes only a month.
And that gives rise to this confusion which your question reflects that the, in time we are looking at a, at a violent change, so to speak, f- from the lowest to the highest basis uh, at harvest time. The cost of warehousing ships up. Well, isn't that the same thing? Is the basis as the warehouse fills up, is your basis rising or is it dropping? It's Wait, rising. It's rising. Until it reaches its. When, when the elevators are full and the new crop has been absorbed by the warehousing business, in this case the elevator business, then the basis reaches its highest level. So you say that the future price is at the highest? If, if the basis is highest, then the future price must be at the maximum over the current price. No, not it's, necessarily. It's, it's, and not necessarily. It, that's, it's almost like the bond price. You have to here. look at the spot price yeah. and the futures price, so they yeah. kind of move well, like the this, and then the basis is the movement like this between the two. Between so the two. you can have high futures and high spot price, and a small basis or a large basis. You can have low futures price and low spot price, and a large or a small basis. The basis is measured over time, as the professor was explaining, in the case of the grains, with the uh, elevators becoming depleted. Nathan? Can I uh, just to clarify then, did I hear that correctly that when you when you try and draw a comparison between the grain markets and the gold and silver uh, futures markets, that the basis had been declining in the in the monetary metals markets gradually since the sixties and seventies because the warehouse space uh, became more and more available because people became more and more willing to bury it in, in their own backyards, and therefore you had essentially unlimited uh, uh, storage space. Is that, Professor, is that what you're saying? Yeah, but uh, it's a little bit more subtle than that because uh, the trust, element of trust also comes in. The warehouse space may be there in the banks, but people are not going to take advantage of it because of the lack of trust. So, so uh, this is a motivation, but if you want to work out the details, probably uh, it takes a little long. The explanation takes a little longer. Do you, yes? Um, what should we use for measuring bases, uh, London or Fixing prices and what future prices <laughs> come in the next few days. Yeah. yeah, I think we're going to have the next two or three the, days. Yeah, the, the question <laughs> is, how, yeah, I think for the purpose, how to yeah, fix the basis is, you know, are you going to use a London fix or a you know, New York fix or whatever? And it's very, very complex. And we're we're very fortunate to have uh, Tom Zabo here. Uh, we'll be using the eBay fix as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something we'd also discuss. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yes, Michael. When the basis moves into backwardation, does that imply hyperinflation? The question is when uh, um, w- the basis moves into backwardization, is that uh, does that imply a hyperinflation? Uh, no, no. The, the, these are two different. Uh, not immediately. Now, I'm not saying that statistically, in the majority of the cases, it did follow. But remember the uh, the saying that uh, post hoc ergo ergo propter hoc, Latin. That means after after this. So because of this, it's a fallacy to say that just because B happened after A, 
B is a consequence of A. This is one of the worst fallacies in logic. So it, it could be that in statistically this is the way it happens. First, it goes to permanent back, into permanent backwardation, the, uh, the gold or silver. I, I would say first silver and then gold, but uh, perhaps uh, I'll be proven wrong on that, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, first, permanent backwardation. And by the way, what does it mean that we have permanent backwardation? What it means is the supply of gold has dried up. It doesn't mean gold disappeared. Gold is still out there, but owners of gold will not relinquish it because they do not trust that what quantity they sold, they can replenish. So the, even the gold mines will stop selling gold because they don't they think it's counterproductive and that connotes or smells smacks like hyperinflation but logically it's perhaps just as well to keep them separate and analyze the nuances because there are differences nuances the question is very good because it's tempting to say that sure permanent backwardation of gold is hyperinflation. Nobody is selling. All the offers to sell have been withdrawn. Yeah. But I think it's still a process. It's, it's, uh, to identify the two is, is probably a mistake. I suppose I'm coming from practical terms and it relates to the question about will, will the end game be deflation or hyperinflation. Um, in practical terms, does that mean that if you're holding paper, that paper is going to be valueless when backwardation occurs. Is that what you're saying? Well, in the sense that you will no longer be... The system will collapse, in effect, yeah. right? So, yeah. so it'll yeah. be worthless. Exactly. But whether it's yeah. worthless because no one's using it, through yeah, disuse, I mean, which is deflation, or through overuse, which is hyperinflation, yeah. Yeah. it's going to be, you know... But it's, it's the same thing. For right. practical purposes to right. Whether people just don't want to use it or because they overuse it, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, prob it's problematical. In fact, I, I just want to raise something at, uh, at a previous uh, Gold uh, Standard University uh, session. The professor said something that just stunned me. And uh, you had mentioned um, a gold corner developing in the market. That uh, really what would happen, and this is tantamount to the backwardization, is that there would become a inadvertent gold corner. A gold corner it would, is usually forced by manipulation, manipulators in the market, cornering a commodity, holding it up, driving the price up, and, and, and reaping the benefits that way. But the professor said this would be an entirely different situation. It could be spontaneous. It would be a spontaneous situation, not by the speculators, but by people refusing because of the collapse of the monetary system, holding on, for, holding on to their gold and silver um, because they didn't know what was going to happen and in the uncertainty causing the, the supply to dry up into the market. And instinctively, instinctively. they feel like a hyperinflation. It's in the air. It's in the air. It's in the air. Yes. Um, I've been reading your articles where you've been saying that one day this was going to happen, it was going to go into liquidation. Um, um, Professor Fegarty has been writing on the web about the possibility that the market was going to go into liquidation and that was going to be the canary in the gold mine. And yet, um, the stuff that I've been reading on the web in the last few weeks 
say that that's actually occurred now, that the physical supply of gold bullion coins in the US, you just can't, can't buy them. Um, that the eBay price is much higher than the actual quoted price. That in actual fact, as we speak, do we have that occurring right now? Okay. Um, I mean, they keep on coming up yeah. with excuses like there's no blanks and you know, there's this and there's that. But I mean, the, the fact is that you cannot buy bullion in the US. That's what I've been reading on the web. Is it true? And, and there's this that are occurring right now. Yeah, he's, he's raising the, qu yeah, the question. I think on this. we're raising a pretty complex question. We can maybe just answer it quickly here, and I don't mean to give a short shrift, but. Um, that, you know, there's a difference between the retail market and wholesale market, and of course mm -hmm. everyone says, well, yeah, of course, but there truly is. Um, and what we're seeing on the retail market is perhaps the start of what will translate to the wholesale market. And in fact, what I'll show in the next couple of days is that it may actually been hap be happening. But the, the permanent backwardation is a scenario where you, you've gone into backwardation, you're there, and attempts to get out of it, in effect, are not successful. And the attempts to get out of it would be by obviously people that are trying to rescue the monetary system. Um, so we would still be, even if we're moving to that, it could be two years, it could be ten years, it could be two weeks. We just don't know. <laughs> We've had periods before where this kind of thing happened. 1980, obviously that, and I'm not saying that's a comparable period, but, you know, the monetary system survived. Gold and silver did go into backwardation temporarily. Uh, there was obviously uh, runs on, you know, retail gold, silver, bullion. Um, so it's just, you don't know right now. It's not just difference between retail and wholesale, but it could be difference between bullion coin and bar form, or, or the refi gold refined to various degrees. Well, even like the American Eagles, the silver American Eagles are now selling for six dollars over spot. You know, why? The silver Eagles, right? Yeah. So the, actually, the the unified gold market could split into small fragmented components and I can even see the day coming that the, the gold mines use a certain they have their own refineries but they cannot refine to 999 fineness right they can probably refine to I don't know would you know how what uh, the gold mine does with its own? Dorate. It'd be Dorate bars. Dorate. Yeah. Dorate. yeah. yeah. But it's yeah. sold to a central refinery, mostly in Western Australia, in Australia. Right. But I think what he's saying is that you would essentially pour your own gold bars on site. Dore is what yeah. the pro what that process is, and that's typically like 98 percent pure, or something like that, 95, 98 percent. Maybe some silver in there too. Yeah. Like and that. then there is a gold dust bar market already being bandied about. That go you can buy gold dust and. Yeah. It has its own rules and uh, and uh, idiosyncrasies. So, so this unifi unified gold market could split into components, and that is fully to be expected, I think. And uh, makes it more difficult, though, figuring out which bases you're looking at, what you mm -hmm. know, because you're going to have different, you're going to have a multiplication of different bases. I started out two years ago just looking at the Kitco spot price and the, and the COMEX futures price as, as a determinant. And, you know, over the last couple of years, that it's just not worked. Now there's 10 different things you can look at. Mm -hmm. And probably next week it'll be 20, you know, so. <laughs> I think uh, you have one, we have time for one more question here. Now, I'm fascinated by your theory on the, on the basis, so uh, it's a fascinating week. But uh, you also pointed out earlier today that their goal 
silver are two exceptions on the futures markets in terms of how much one can be short. Um, China, you know, you have obviously considered that, so your theory works even in that corrupt futures market. Would you like to? Do you want to repeat the question? Did you hear the whole question, Professor? Once you verify the praise. Yeah, that's it's it's a big question you're asking. All right. And and he's he's talking about the the basis in regards to grain et cetera, but with specifically with the, with with the monetary metals, gold and silver, uh, with such huge short positions in the market that can affect spot. Um, he's asking, I, I believe you're asking the question: Does the basis theory still hold in the light of such huge shorts overriding the market? Is that right? That's right. Okay. Okay. Now, um, you, you you relay the theory. The theory. theory. You're better at the theory. First, I want to answer the question, what's the difference between a monetary commodity and a non-monetary commodity? The uh, answer to that question is a non-monetary commodity is being consumed from hand to mouth. The, you never have a too large uh, uh, warehouse portion of this because that would suppress the price unduly and it would hurt the producers. So there's a built-in mechanism. However, monetary metals, using the technical word, are those which have the constant marginal utility or at least the slowest marginal utility. That's too technical. In plain language it means that the, uh, it's no longer true that the more you have the less valuable it is. Because for copper this is definitely true, for wheat this is definitely true. If you have a, a, a bumper crop of wheat then the price collapses and it may hurt uh, the uh, producer as much as it helps the consumer hurts the producer. Now for a monetary commodity this is not the case because the monetary commodity is being hoarded by a large number of people out there and therefore the even if production jumps it's readily absorbed because the existing hordes of monetary metal are big enough and people have confidence that it, this additional increase will be smoothly absorbed. So uh, in terms of the basis what this means is that typically monetary metal is always in contango and backwardation is a flashing red light that something is very seriously wrong in the world not necessarily spelling out what it is but it could be the monetary system banking system could be war uh, or, or something whereas the case for uh, Non-monetary commodities is the basis is cyclical. It goes from contango to backwardation and back, or, or in any case, it's cyclical. So, so this is the theory. Now, when it comes to practice, I will pass pass on the word to you. Well, I think that just to finish what you were saying, I think that the concept overall is that 
because the Lord stocks the flows, uh, it would be very difficult. I think what you're uh, sort of implying is that there are manipulation that can essentially make the basis either uh, paint some picture that's not true or hide the truth. And But in reality, because of large stocks of, of gold and silver that are out there, um, this is actually very difficult to do compared to a, 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 a non-monetary commodity. Um, from, from a practical perspective, uh, uh, if you view sort of the gold market as unitary, meaning everyone acts the same way, all the large players acting together could potentially, you know, uh, paint sort of the numbers. But I think in reality, there is, you get to consider the profit motive that if a particular party that has the same information as another one uh, uh, is uh, looking at, at another party that is now trying to paint the numbers, that means that in fact they're selling at the wrong price. So the other party will come in and take advantage of that as an arbitrage, and that doing so will reset it to the same thing. And again, it all has to do with the size of the market, the underlying uh, gold and silver that's 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 actually out there. Um, but you know, again, if you think everyone's, mon you know, if, if all the billion banks and all the central banks are all doing the same thing, and they you know they all have the same playbook exactly every day, then you know, um, potentially you know that 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 could be a concern. Tom, is that currently being done? That um, the question, well, I, I think I can, no, I think Thomas is saying that it's possible, but you can't tell. If there's any arbitrage being done in the market, it depends on who, it's, all, it's done in your theory. You, know. you can tell, you can tell. Right, this is that's a, but that's a very small, that's a very, right, that is. And, and if it get large enough, that could, for example, affect the, you know, the, the, the basis. Um, there are tools you can use, though, to compare different. Uh, for example, one of the things that I'll show is the ETFs. Uh, there's actually a mechanism by which the ETFs translate the demand for ETF shares into the physical market. Seeing how those two prices behave on a day-to-day -day basis at different times of the day, you can actually see the arbitrage taking place. If I were to stop seeing that happening, then I could come back and say, uh-oh, you know, maybe there's something going on. But you can actually use tools to look at different prices, relationships between the different prices, and, and essentially establish that, that arbitrage is still taking place. We're moving into backwardization on our lunch schedule. <laughs> so, um, we can just say when yeah. we'll, we'll re reconvene at, I think, I believe quarter to three. Is that where we're at, Maurice? Oh, okay. So, a quarter to three, we'll take up this interest, this subject that's more interesting. What, yeah. Professor? Uh, now, this is exceptional today because normally we'll try to keep to the from two to f yeah. This, yeah, four. this we got shoved back. That's what it is. So, we're going to try and hold to the schedule. Tomorrow we start in the morning at 10, at 10 yeah. and after lunch at, at 2. 2. But today is exceptional. Yes. These are exceptional times.